0: Welcome to Change Making Connections, the podcast where transformative talks on social justice, leadership, and beyond become more than just words. I'm your host, Beth Barilla. Each month, I invite a global change leader to talk with me about the strategies and tactics that they use to cultivate deep transformation in their lives, their communities, and their organizations. Tune in to Changemaking Connections for your monthly dose of inspiration and insight. Let's create a ripple of change together. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Changemaking Connections. I'm your host, Beth Barilla, and I'm excited to be with you today. Today, we're gonna to do things a little bit differently in that my colleague and friend, Dr. May Samad has given me the generous gift of talking with me about my new book, which is coming out in December. The second edition of Integrating Mindfulness into Anti-Oppression Pedagogy, Social Justice and Education and Higher Education is coming out with Routledge in December. And May also does a lot of beautiful work in this area. And so I'm excited to talk with you about it. I'm gonna read your bible Bio and then hand it over to you. So Dr. May Zamad's academic journey began at the University of Michigan, Dearborn, where she pursued philosophy and minored in chemistry. She earned a doctoral degree in cellular and clinical neurobiology with a minor in biomedical sciences from Wayne State University School of Medicine in Detroit. After a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Arizona's Department of Neuroscience, she joined Pima Community College, teaching a variety of biology-related subjects. During her tenure at PCC, she founded their Teaching and Learning Center. Currently an Associate Professor at Connecticut College, Dr. Ahmad is interested in understanding the social determinants of student well-being and success and conducts research on equity and pedagogy. Her work reflects a deep commitment to equity and justice in and through education. With fervor, she advocates for institutions to pay close attention to intergenerational trauma and to prioritize healing and well-being. She is a Gardner Institute Fellow, AAC U Senior STEM Fellow, and Mind and Life Institute Fellow. And our paths crossed through the Center, of, Center for Contemplative Mind and Society, Association for Contemplative Mind and Higher Ed. And you always just bring such beautiful grounded energy and such heart-centered questions towards equity and well-being that I'm really excited to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. I want to thank our listeners for tuning in, and I'm really, I'm really grateful for this opportunity. You know, where my heart is pulling me towards is this, this, it's a curiosity about your personal experience with, I'm going to call it liberatory pedagogy or liberatory higher education and juxtapose that with oppressive pedagogy and oppressive. So was it, was it, did you encounter the liberatory and then reflected on the oppressive or was the oppressive is what led you to seek other
0: alternatives? Interesting. Interesting. Well, I remember my first college Class that was deeply transformational as an undergrad really exposed me to critical thinking. And then I went on to learn about the feminization of poverty and kind of feminist analyses of oppression in the world. And that was really, that really shaped my entry into social justice work. As I pursued my work, As a graduate student and then my dissertation and then other work, I really became grounded in feminist pedagogies as a way of empowering the collective, unsettling, established power dynamics, understanding that as a whole, we can produce more than what any one of us singularly can produce, but always needing to examine the power dynamics and the power relations in the room. And so for much of my early teaching career, I focused a lot on feminist pedagogy, which I see as a liberatory pedagogy. That then, of course, was informed by critical race theory and by queer theory. But as I started doing that more, well, I should say, I also then used that to interrupt oppression. But I really like your question and the way it, you know, even now, as I was working on the second edition of my book, I was like, well, I'm not going to change the title. I did substantially change the content. I'm not going to change the title because it's a second edition, but I'm increasingly less interested in anti-oppression as a framing and much more interested in liberatory work. And I think the anti part is a part of that process, but I'm less interested in orienting to it. So thank you for highlighting that.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I've been reflecting on the notion of resilience. And um and it's loaded. It's a loaded concept. It is of course there is there is this notion of biological resilience. In fact, we were talking about it in class today. And as you probably know, it's also resilience has been weaponized to to undermine people's struggles and pain and but what I've been really like going going into more and more is the relationship between resilience and resistance. And resistance is how necessarily it is for there to be resilience. And and those are that is res, resistance is a is a form of liberatory practice. Yeah so so, I'm wondering if you could talk about how because in higher education, despite of what we say about equity and social justice and and liberation, we are still dealing with systems of of oppression and systems that perpetuate monocultural eurocentric ways of of knowing and being, and so I'm wondering if you could talk about, again, continuing with your journey, and then you brought in the mindfulness, that the liber- liberatory, the anti-oppressive. How have you encountered resistance, and how have you resisted?
0: Mm. Interesting questions. So I I think I'll tease them apart a little bit, just in my own thoughts. So to continue my journey a little bit, I had been teaching social justice through a gender and women's studies lens, intersectional analysis of power for years, but I kept feeling like there was something missing because I would feel so much dissonance, both in my own life and my own journey, but also in my colleagues and students, and that we we would understand social justice as much as anyone can understand it intellectually, but we couldn't hold it in our beings. For many reasons, because we were operating in a system that had its own, was enacting its own harm. Higher education is not inherently different from other institutionalized oppression systems, right? We can enact harm as part of higher ed as well. And then also... Just the layers of our being, being able to hold it in our bodies and work through the dissonance, do the healing from the trauma of oppression that needs to happen, do the unlearning from internalized oppression, dismantle the ways that we might embody privileges and supremacy that are so deeply ingrained we might not even realize we're doing it, or we might, and then why? What's the commitment to unpacking it? And mindfulness was my route into that embodied work. It was the place where I started to explore some questions and and find some paths for how do I take this anti-oppression and then liberatory work more deeply and be able to hold it with more integrity? And then how do I offer some of those practices to my students, knowing that some practices won't land, others will, but kind of planting the seeds. And that's when I started doing the integration. I'm getting... In a roundabout way to the question about resilience and resistance. As I've been doing this work and working with you and so many other brilliant colleagues doing this work, I started to continue to explore mindfulness, but go more deeply into somatics as a whole body way of transformation. And mindfulness is kind of can be incorporated into somatic practices, but somatic work can also be a, a slightly different path. And so for me, I think many people doing social justice work or people who are holding identities, lived experiences that are marginalized in the societies in which they are living, in order to survive, often do resist to be able to express their voice, to be able to um, have some sense of self. That resistance might be individual, it might be collective, it might be both. I think resistance without resilience and care can take a deep, deep toll. In part, because I, I think about here, Ana Louise Keating, colleague of ours in her book, Transformation Now, talks about the danger of always being in reaction or in opposition to, that. that that is a really important stance to take. It's needed at times. So it's not like entirely good or entirely bad, but if we're constantly in reaction or resistance to mode, that can take a toll on us emotionally, physically, spiritually. Resilience can be a really important way to find some grounding, find some care for yourself and one another, to tap into the inherent. I do believe that life moves towards life, as Adrienne Murray Brown says, and that that there is a wholeness within us that we long for that oppression has eroded away and so if we can part of resistance is dismantling that and moving towards wholeness like getting working against the things that are blocking that wholeness and trying to recover it or rebuild it or reclaim it but I think we need some skills and support in order to do so. So I think resilience can be really powerful when infused with resistance as long as, as you said before, it's not weaponized. It's not like put on marginalized groups that, oh, you're so you know, you're so resilient, you can handle all this harm. that we don't want to do that. Um, we want to be changing the conditions. But I think we also want to acknowledge the inherent wisdom strength insights that marginalized communities have as individuals and as wholes. And I think your work, given that you come from more of a neuroscience and biological analysis than I do, I mean, I have that, but that's not where my research is. I think you'd also have some really interesting insights about what we mean by resilience and what its relationship is to resistance. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm Yeah, thank you. I love that. I love how it's it's so interconnected and it keeps going back to, you know, almost as I as I watch you answer the questions, I, I'm watching your body language. Mm-hmm. And so you talk about the somatic and I feel it. Um, I see it. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you could talk about mindfulness in the context of I mean, you talked a little bit about it. Mindfulness mm-hmm. in the context of social justice, in the context of laboratory work. And if you could perhaps both problematize it, but also share with us some, where where is home when it comes to this mindfulness notion in the context of social justice?
0: Oh, where is home? Hmm. Yeah. I'm not sure I know, but that is an intriguing exploration that I will pursue. The initial response, like my inner soma, my initial somatic response was to sink in and say home is like deep within, not externally oriented, but it's a deep within. And for listeners, I'm kind of gesturing to my inner like gut area it's one that i envision as like interconnected in a web with everybody else's so it's not individualistic but it's also not external it's a sinking in i don't know if i will agree with that statement in a couple of days but that was my initial response so i think Mindfulness for me as I mentioned was my path into exploring these questions of embodiment and I come at mindfulness both from a western perspective because I've been raised in the US also from some buddhist background though I'm not well trained in buddhism and I've I have a kind of loving lovingly critical relationship with mindfulness as it has often been taken up in western circles so i think that the practices the self awareness the the very idea of coming at something orienting to something as a practice which i understand to be almost ritualistic in its intent like there's intentionality behind it almost anything can be a practice if there's a a focus on it a uh, sinking inward and orienting towards what it means a coming back to it again and again and again and being open to what the different insights or experiences might be the idea of a beginner's mind all of those things are very similar in some ways to social justice work that we never get there it's we make mistakes some days we have to constantly come back to it it always requires self reflection both require compassion and empathy both might be an a turning inward but I also think in relationship to everything that's around us. I think where the complexity needs to come in, not that that isn't complex, but is that number one, I think we need to be careful of detaching practices from their cultural locations and traditions. So instead of cherry-picking elements out of a really deep and long-standing tradition and then plopping them somewhere else. We need to be aware of the traditional context and make choices about how deep we go or whether we use them. We need to be mindful of cultural appropriation and who should be doing which practices, particularly if we're introducing them in classrooms, which is a lot of what my book is about. And we need, for me, one of the really critical pieces is that social justice work brings. And so many more people are doing that integration of mindfulness and social justice than I was aware of when I first wrote the book. I think that has really developed in the past many, many years in beautiful, beautiful ways. But that some mindfulness practices as they've been taken up in the West are very individualized and they're very about self-care and this kind of take yourself away from society take a bath, take a massage, both some of which require leisure and financial time and access to do so that they're not accessible to everybody. And the idea is to achieve peace, like inner peace, but often if you bring up political issues, you're accused of like disrupting the peace, right? That to me is not a kind of mindfulness I'm interested in. A lot of the work that I do, like you do, and so many other social justice folk are doing when integrating mindfulness is to, it's another element that brings us in connection with one another, and in order to do that, we need to be aware of the power dynamics that are there, the identity, different identity locations and experiences, what will help us be connected, what will help us stay connected across difference and through potential conflict and disruptions of power dynamics, i think some of the mindfulness practices with their heart-centered element the deepening of self-reflection the begin again over and over a lot of that can be really really rich when infused with social justice i think the the relationship also goes the other way which is that i think some elements of social justice work can be uh, you know have been known to be really something that le- can lead to burnout culture because so much Of the issues are so urgent to so many people's lived experiences. And how can we use mindfulness practices not just for self care, but for collective care and communities of care? And how can we also bring the mindfulness in when infused with social justice in a way that helps us tap into kind of a radical imagination and build different worlds? Right.
1: Beautiful. Beautiful. I know your book is, is, uh, just offer so many insights on how to bring this and seamlessly embed it into the classroom. How did it all start for you? And what I'm asking is, did you you go in, wake up one day and say, this is what I'm going to do? Or were you hesitant? And what gave you, I guess, what encouraged you? Did you get pushback from students? You know, I'm asking because, especially in STEM, Folks are always, even when they think that, yes, I really need this, this is going to help my student, my students learning, the community, there's a lot of hesitation. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely. I did find pushback from colleagues and students. I think that part of what led me to try integrating it was because mindfulness and at the time yoga had been so critical in my own transformation, the rea- the reality of doing some of those practices, engaging in a community around them and realizing there were whole layers of my being I wasn't tapping into that were sources of strength and also possible sources of derailing what I cared about. And that that the mindfulness and the yoga practices at the time and now the somatic work were ways of deepening the, the social justice work that I cared about. So because I had explored that in my own life, I started, uh, and seeing where a lot of students and colleagues were struggling that felt familiar, I started trying to integrate small practices into my classrooms uh, many, many years ago. For a while, it was a struggle. Students would look at me like I was weird. They would just kind of stare at me if I would this look like, what are you doing? When I tried to get people to focus on breath or do some sort of meditation. And that's where I started because I wasn't as skillful as some of my colleagues at the time who had been doing it longer. I found over the years that one key element in being successful in this is explaining the why. Why would we do this? How does it relate to the content that you're studying? How does it relate to your well-being? And sometimes in some classes, it depends on the group and where they are developmentally and what they're interested in. But I, for instance, some of my STEM students or or students in nursing or other high stress, challenging, heavy course load kinds of majors, sometimes I start with conversations about stress and well-being and managing that. And then when I get some buy-in or some willingness to try with some curiosity, I then deepen it into social justice work because I'm... Of course, the stress and the well-being is really important, but I'm integrating it for other reasons. But part of it is meeting people where they're at. Yeah, always giving them permission to opt out, giving more than one practice for people to do so or scaffolding it so that if they don't want to go deeper in a particular moment or something does feel too unfamiliar or too risky, they can not go down that path without Causing a spectacle of themselves in the classroom. I think those were all things that really my trauma informed feminist background helped me practice, but also was kind of trial and error. And I learned over the years one of the other challenges, of course, I face, and I think in STEM, you probably really face it is. The pressure of how do I take time to do this when there's so much course content to cover?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. Yeah, because to do this takes time. You can't rush the mindfulness pieces. And especially when you're in fields where there are like external accrediting bodies or certain kinds of content that have to be covered because it's all sequential or something like that. It can be really like, how do I fit this in? Right. And students can be, I need to prepare for the test. Why are we doing this? And so again, helping them understand that they will be more successful at their studies the more they can access their well-being. And this is one way. I try to make sure that I never suggest that it's the, the, the only way or that this X, Y, and Z practice will work for everybody. But I try to expose them to different practices and help them understand that knowing what doesn't work for them and why can be just as valuable and can lead them on the path of finding like, okay, that didn't work. What well, might work for me?
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, when I um I uh, teach a course called autonomic nervous system regulation and for a long time I focused it was purely intellectual and then I began to see that I was really doing the just, uh, injustice to the students by not really doing the experiential. And I was nervous and I started doing the experiential, and it was like I was working with sponges. They kept wanting more and more. They would say, how come we didn't know this? And what was the most, I I felt so empowering for the students is when they say it works. (gasps) It works. It works outside the classroom. Like this find your breath, find your center is what I often heard. And it really gave me so much then I felt empowered by the students witnessing and bearing witness of the, the power of, of this work. So, yeah. In fact, I remember having to miss class one time and, um, and I told them we're going to have a substitute and, you know, my substitute is uh, the substitute is my colleague and she's really good. And, and they said, what about our meditation? (laughs) that was the concern for them it was really I was so touched that you know they I didn't their body was speaking yeah yeah
0: Yeah. I found students often have similar reactions and for some students it, it doesn't resonate although I I see it as kind of planting the seed and when they need it may not be a meditation it might be something else but when their life Presents in ways where they need some way to regulate or some way to ground. I think knowing that that exists out there somewhere might send them on a path of finding what will help and support them. But I also have had experiences where students look at me like it's weird in the beginning, and then partway through the semester, they're begging for it. And I try to remind them that, like, you don't need me to create these spaces for yourself, Mm -hmm. even just a couple breaths here or there as a practice. It's not going to fix oppression or injustice, but it's resourcing you can draw upon to help you continue the process of transformation. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's super, super important. Um, and also part of the transformation and, and learning process of higher ed. I mean, I think that one of the downsides of higher ed, at least in many disciplines, not some like dance or some other kinds, but in many disciplines, it's so cerebral and it's so fast paced that it runs counter to bringing our full selves into our learning process. And I see myself, particularly as a feminist teacher, teaching gender and women's studies and teaching around social justice issues, that part of my work is to help students find their voices and figure out where they want to contribute and how they want to contribute to their communities and learn the life skills that will continue to empower them and help them work towards a better world and taking care of yourself and one another has mm-hmm. to be a part of that process.
1: Mhm. Yeah. Beautiful. So, I'm wondering speaking of taking care, this this is a lot of work. How do you how do you take care of, of take care of yourself that you don't get burned out and and especially since sometimes this work can bring up things, wounds, trauma. So how do you attend to your center? Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, good question. I'm on that learning journey. <laughs> I have learned that I really need ritual in my life, and that can be as simple as every morning I get up, I have my cup of coffee in a mug that a friend of mine made me, I snuggle with my kitty, and I read words of wisdom by social justice people to frame my day. Like, it it isn't elaborate. But if I don't have that every morning, I'm I'm off. I'm just off all day. And there's again, it's an intentionality behind it. And then I embed mindfulness practices in throughout my day, or I really surround myself with people like yourself or with I seek out podcasts or other conversations of people who are on similar journeys to remind myself that it can be done, that I'm in community knowing when to pull back, when to set some boundaries. Again, community is important because if I pull back, somebody else is stepping forward. And then when they need to step back, I can step forward or move forward rather. I think the point that it can really bring up things for ourselves and our students is really important. to Because oppression has disembodied so many people and cut us off from our embodied experience and caused trauma to so many people currently and intergenerationally, the process of re-embodying can be really, really messy. Some people might not be ready for it. The institutional space of a classroom might not be the space for it. Any particular group of people, some are more supportive than others. Some, you know, there might be Cumulative or microaggressions happening that make a student be like, I'm not doing this next to this person or near some," you know, all of that stuff is happening, which is why I think it's really, really important to bring a both a trauma sensitive and a healing centered approach to how if or why we integrate these practices to allow students choice that's part of trauma centered work. To cue our colleagues in student affairs, in counseling services, and other kinds of advisory and support people, if so that we have resources to send people to if people need additional support, and to provide students with off ramps or recentering or re regulation practices, because you know I, I'm very clear with myself and my students. I'm not a counselor. This is a classroom, not a counseling space. So there are some things that you know we don't necessarily want to go into, and yet trauma is a part of oppression. And so it's in the room, whether we name it or not, and it's in our lives, whether we name it or not. And so if we can model, even developing the ability of, hey, I don't want to go there today, that I don't have the capacity, that's a boundary that's really important for people to develop for themselves. Here's what I could do instead. Here's the resource I need. Here's an off-ramp for me in this practice. And again, not just individually, we don't wanna put the responsibility on the individual, but I kind of hold that tension between, even as we're changing wider systems of oppression and building collective communities to support one another, I think individuals also want and need some agency. So it's not their responsibility to always be resilient in an oppressive system. And what are some options in their tool belt that they can draw on that can help them feel more empowered and give them some abilities to regulate when it's important to regulate, to center, to reach out to people when they need to, right? I see that as a life skill.
1: Yeah. I'm feeling drawn to go back to something that you said earlier about the political when we were talking about mindfulness and you know not to pacify it not to just to to you know the complexity of that and like you I have experienced especially when we talk about I mean especially in STEM we talk about issues of equity and inclusion and it's it's welcome as long as you stay neutral and and there, there's this, you know, science is not political or our job is not to be political. We shouldn't be political. And I just fundamentally disagree with that. So I'll just be very honest. I'm wondering, where do you think that's coming from? This push against the political, which in and of itself is a political. I'm wondering, what, what's, what's your insight? with that?
0: Well, I think that there are some discourses that assume a false neutrality and objective position. So I was trained growing up, and I was going to be a journalist, and I was taught that journalists shouldn't have an opinion unless you're writing an editorial that you need to be objective an objective meant neutral all positions represented equally i think much of though at the risk of making a sweeping generalization i think much western science also assumes a particular kind of neutrality and i say western because i think that there are other indigenous scientific perspectives that that take different approaches but i think what's in that you know from a feminist perspective i always argue that All perspectives are political, that political sometimes gets used to say either like electoral stuff, but not our daily life, or it's like political means you are challenging what is in ways that we don't want to go. We just want to talk about objective knowledge, and yet all knowledge is situated. Who's asking the questions? Who's being interviewed? What what studies are getting funded? What's happening with the results? Who's included? Who's not included? That's all political. That's all informed by power dynamics. And so it requires a kind of question, constantly questioning the status quo. And also, you know, getting at, from a transformational perspective, what's really at stake in clinging to that idea that we can somehow have this conversation without getting political? And what's really so scary about getting political?
1: Well, well, I'm thinking I've been so much sitting with Judith Herman's work Mm. and this notion of bearing witness Mm. and what it means, I mean, just especially over the past several weeks. She talks about how all the perpetrator asks of us is to be neutral. You know, you see, and then you just keep, keep going. And it's easy. It's easy to just do that. However, the victim survivors ask more of us, which is to bear witness. And that is an actionable thing. And so You know, I wonder if this pushback against, oh, let's not be political, let's not take a stand, let's not, let's be neutral, because it challenges that status quo that you talked about. It pushes, it resists against oppressive system, whether it's at the individual or community level. And the narrative is no longer, or the the control is no longer in the hands of the perpetrator.
0: Mm Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I'm wondering if you can, and you know, we're we're coming to an end here, to to bring in contemplative practices. You know, that's it's a lot of your work involves contemplative practices, and I'm, and and perhaps some people, some of our listeners will wonder. What is the connection between mindfulness, contemplative practices, and on a day-to-day basis? Do you have your own practices? Do you do students bring their own practices? And
0: yeah, mm-hmm. good question. You know, I think originally I used the term mindfulness in my book as a kind of more accessible term than contemplative practices or contemplative pedagogies. For me, mindfulness is a type of contemplative pedagogy or practice. And since writing the first book and connecting with you and other people in the contemplative pedagogy world, I've engaged and explored so many more different types of practices and different traditions. I do have my own, and as I say in both editions of the book, I don't think you can teach contemplative pedagogy unless you are engaged in contemplative practice yourself. What that looks like can be quite varied, but you need to be doing your own practices and your own reflections, especially if you're going to ask students to. Just like I think you need to be engaged in your own social justice journey to be teaching about social justice issues. I like to create spaces for students to bring in their own. I think that's really, really important. I think often they have them, they just don't call them mindfulness or contemplative practices. But if you ask them, how do they handle stress? And you get them beyond the, I go get more coffee or I watch about a bunch of Netflix, they often have some practices that they rely on and they love to learn from one another. I think it can be really helpful. Um, there are contemplative practices, though they come by different names in every cultural tradition, I think. They look different, they have different functions, they're called different things. But I think one form of healing and moving towards liberatory pedagogy and a liberatory world is helping people who have been severed from their practices find some path back. Or to claim them if they have some relationship to them. That can be fraught. It can, it's not all, it it often brings with it a lot of pain. Robin Walkhammer talks about that, some grieving. But contemplative pedagogy can also help hold that. I mean, the the idea that whatever arises is the work, I, I think is true in both contemplative pedagogy and social justice. And I see contemplative practices as deepening social justice work or having the potential to do so and vice versa, so that we can all become more skilled and more connected in building a better world.
1: So thank you. Speaking of building a better world, Mm -hmm. you know, this work can be tough. And sometimes I look and I think, oh, so much, we have so much to do. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I often go back to the Teachings of James Baldwin. And he, James Baldwin says, I live a hope despite my knowing better. Mm. What gives you hope?
0: Mm. Connections with people like you.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> my students and the excitement and passion they bring, which looks different at their age when they're traditional college-age students than I'm feeling in my mid-50s. So that's inspiring. So much amazing work being done out there. This book is much more grounded. It still draws on academic backgrounds, but it's much more grounded in the public and popular realm. Activists on the ground or people doing public community work that are integrating embodiment and social justice work in really creative ways. And that is so inspiring to me. I think that's That keeps me going on a daily basis. And then nature, I'm increasingly connected to nature and exploring my own artistic practice, whatever it may be, because it helps me connect to a different part of my being. And I find myself more nourished after that. So and I really I talked about this in an earlier podcast with with Keith Edwards drawing on Kari Green's book that it that hope too is a practice so I remember that on days when I don't feel at all hopeful that it's a practice it will ebb and flow but I can feed it I can seed it help it grow and that I'm only here because people have done the work before me and that itself is hopeful.
1: beautiful wow so I can I can keep talking with you for, for <laughs> yes, it. and I and I also want to be mindful of the time. What else would you like to add to to share with the listeners that that I that I didn't go into?
0: Mm. I feel like now, as much as any time, but it feels it feels really important now that we develop. Our capacities as human beings to be with really complex emotions and differences, that we learn how to be with each other across those differences and through the rough spots as we're trying to dismantle systems and change power dynamics. I do think power dynamics clearly privilege some groups, but I think they cost everyone our humanities, including those. That are privileged, and so I feel like we're we really need heart centered work right now that includes fierce social justice work, but with a tenderness of heart and an ability to be present with all the complexities and messiness of all that is. And I'm really inspired by some of the beautiful work out there. So my current book ends with a chapter on creating better worlds, like the 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 role of creativity. And radical imagination is something that gives me hope. And I find that I have to move into that sometimes when I'm spiraling into some despair. Because while the despair is real and it's well-earned, I can't be skillful or keep doing the work if I'm in that place for too long. And that may not be true of everybody, but I find for me, the, the creativity helps pull me out of some of that. And just deepening connection, even on a small level. I think our students long for that. And the more we can forge connections in our classrooms, the more they will show up for and with one another in ways that last well beyond our class semester or term. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I love it. Well, thank you. This is so feels, it feels like water washing over me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so much so needed so i'm really grateful for for that
0: yeah thank you it was really beautiful to be in your presence again and i asked you to talk with me about this because i really respect you and i love the energy that you bring to things and it's lovely to be in dialogue with you again
1: thank you beth thank you for this opportunity and it's mutual is so mm. mutual. thank you
0: thank you